Luke 8, 22 to 56. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake, so the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of, out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not, not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the, into the lake and was drowned. When those ten of the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what happened, what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in the right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got onto the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were expecting him. Then a man named Jarius, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. A woman was there, who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, 
she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Do not be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the, child, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but were ordered not to tell anyone what had happened. Good evening, Uni Church. My name is Tyler. Great to be here. Joe, thanks for reading the Bible to us this evening. On a scale from 1 to 10, how insane is your life at the moment? One is, you're not here, but you sort of are here because you're listening in, streaming the sermon while you laze on a beach in the Maldives with nothing but blue skies, no worries, and two weeks of holiday on your radar. Ten is, you're here, but you're not really here. Because your heart and your mind are being pressured from nine different directions. And it's taken a great deal of effort just to physically rock up tonight. What's your score? Likely not one. Hopefully not ten. But probably higher than lower. Like Joe, you have a long-lost cousin that comes to live with you. That insanity ratchets up. If you're me, you walk into the building this morning, you see the sign in the foyer that says Space Mania is only nine days away. You go from a six to a seven. When the insanity ratchets up, our tendency is to seek safety, to seek security, a place of sanity and rest. Though the way we pursue that is often by checking out, distracting ourselves, numbing ourselves, pulling the duna over our head, and denying reality. How's that working out for us? And what factor does faith, or lack of it, play as we stumble on trying to navigate our crazy lives. Luke's going to help us think that through this evening. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, you know our minds and you know our hearts. And this evening we pray that you might just create some space in our mind that we could really hear what you're saying to us. And we ask that you'd soften our heart, that your word would sink deeply in, and by your Spirit, you would work good in our lives through what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got my clicker. We'll begin number one in verse 22. 
from chaos to calm. One day, Jesus says to his friends, let's go for a sail. They hop in, push off from shore. The boat rocks with the gentle waves, and Jesus falls asleep. The weather wakes up. A squall descends on the lake. The wind is wailing. The water is writhing. And the unbridled fury of this storm bears down on the disciples. Their boat isn't built for this battering. It's getting swamped and they think we are going down with the ship. While they are in great danger, Jesus is having a great nap. He's still asleep. Most of us know someone who can sleep through anything. Maybe that's Jesus. Can snooze right through a hurricane. But the disciples are terrified. Master, master, we are going to drown. In verse 24, Luke records the most incredible event in the most matter-of-fact way. Jesus got up. And rebuked the wind and the raging waters, the storm subsided, and all was calm. Jesus doesn't stress. He simply speaks, and the storm is silenced. The howling wind is shushed. The water becomes like glass. Chaos flees at Jesus' command, and now there is great calm. Jesus breaks the stillness with one piercing question. It's there in verse 25. Where is your faith? The disciples, fearful, amazed, bewildered, ask each other, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. And remember, this this was all Jesus' idea in the first place, wasn't it? It's his suggestion in verse 22, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Has Jesus checked the weather forecast? Of course he has. Jesus knows what he is taking his disciples into. I don't think this is an accident. He deliberately leads his disciples into and through the storm. How come? Because it's often through danger and difficulty that the essential question of our faith is brought to the surface. Notice that Jesus doesn't ask, do you have faith? No. Every single one of us here, every person on the planet is putting our faith in something. It may be yourself, it it might be your position, your reputation, your earning potential, your friends, your influence, your health, whatever. We're all putting our faith in something. Faith always has an object. And so the question is not, do you have faith? But rather, where is your faith? For the disciples, the object of their faith is literally being fleshed out before them. Jesus tames the wind and the waves. They call Jesus master, and yes, indeed he is. Yet they are still plumbing the depths of his mastery, as are we. 
Friends, what storms have you been through? What storms are you in right now? What storms lie on your horizon? Where is your faith in the storms of life? Is is Jesus at the forefront of your heart and your mind? Or is he forgotten, neglected, blown away by the winds of this world? If so, that be a real shame. Because I'm not sure where else you are going to find someone who will safely see you through from chaos to calm. Number two, from destruction to restoration. We're at verse 26. The disciples are still scratching their heads when their boat hits the shore, and no sooner has Jesus planted his feet on firm ground than chaos meets him in the form of a demon-possessed man. No clothes, no cleanness, no home, no hope. He's taken up residence in the tombs, but he can't bury his pain. This guy is so far gone that even his name is corrupted. He's called Legion because many demons had gone into him. Metal chains and armed guards, they are useless against the demons that have seized him and driven him into desolation. And yet this man, a lost cause if there ever was one, now finds himself at Jesus' feet in a position of submission. He knows who Jesus is, the Son of the Most High God. And the demons in this man, they too know who's really in charge. They beg Jesus' permission to enter a bunch of swine instead of being sent into the abyss. Jesus says yes, he allows it. But I'll tell you what, even I wouldn't touch that bacon. As you can appreciate, it's, it's not every day that a sizable herd of demon-possessed pigs has a death race to the bottom of a lake. But that's what happened, according to verse 33. And it's no surprise, then, that that topic was totally trending amongst the locals because a whole crowd comes to see for themselves what in the world is going on. Now, let's take a moment here, Uni Church, and, and let me put this question out here. What is the deal with the demon bacon? Why the pigs? Jesus could have ordered them into the abyss. How come he didn't? I think he wants to show us something. Picture that man in your mind. What do you reckon that man was thinking? As he watched those pigs filled with demons, the very demons that had possessed him, hurl themselves into the water and drown. I reckon he was thinking, that could have been me. That could have been me. And that would have been me except for Jesus. Here's what Jesus is helping us to see. Left unchecked, the trajectory of our chaotic, broken, messed up lives 
is this headlong descent to destruction. And it is only then the gracious intervention of the Lord Jesus into our lives that protects us from a similar fate and produces in us true restoration. Back to the crowd in verse 35. They come to Jesus and what they find gives them the fright of their lives. What fills them with fear? A raging, naked, out-of-his-mind, demon-possessed man? No. That same man, now sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. That's the sort of transformation that Jesus brings from destruction to restoration. It all seems too much, though, for the crowd. Take a look at verse 37. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Those folks, they're not the only ones who've ever felt unsure, paralyzed, apprehensive, even afraid when it comes to Jesus. Maybe you found yourself in a similar state. And if so, if that's you, will you invite Jesus to stay or will you insist that he leave? The people of the Gerasenes, they roll up the welcome mat, say, see ya, don't call us, we'll call you, and lock the door. It's quite sad, isn't it? Though Jesus is quite polite, if you ask him to leave, he will. Be careful then what you ask for. Because apart from Jesus, those people will ultimately suffer the same fate as their pigs. Before Jesus leaves, the man says, hey, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, actually, you've got gospel work to do right here. See his words in verse 39. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man goes and tells not just his household, he he tells every man and his dog, every man and his pig, the entire town, what Jesus has done for him. In his newly cured, restored, saved state, the man has grasped something of this profound reality, that Jesus is Next we come to, we'll come to it. There we go. Back one. From death to life. We're at verse 40. Jesus returns across the lake to a sea of people. One man in the crowd is determined to see him. Jairus, though a ruler of the synagogue, has a problem too big for his pay grade. He seeks Jesus out, finds him, falls at his feet, and begs Jesus for help. Because his only daughter, 12 years old, is dying. Can you see Jairus' desperation as he pleads with Jesus to come to his house? 
Jesus goes with Jairus, but it's slow going. The crowds are crushing, and something happens that stops Jesus in his tracks. We'll come back to that story in a moment. They haven't got far when a messenger arrives and delivers the four words Jairus has dreaded hearing the most. Your daughter is dead. The messenger serves the ruler Jairus. He knows authority. And he knows it's no use battling the authority of death. Don't bother the teacher anymore, he advises. Let's let's not waste his time. Forget it. But Jesus disagrees. Look at his plea to Jairus in verse 50. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And she will be healed. In other words, have faith and she'll be saved. Jesus journeys to Jairus' house and the scene when he arrives, it is utter Commotion, weeping, wailing, mourning, the hallmarks of death. Jesus enters into this chaos and says, stop wailing. Don't weep. She's not dead, but asleep. An insensitive, lame joke? No, no. Just a statement of strength. Because to Jesus, death has no more hold on a person than to sleep. And look what Jesus does in verse 54. He takes this girl's hand in his and says, My child, get up. Jesus' words, they rouse her from the nightmare of death. And straight away, she stands up. Turns out being raised from the dead really takes it out of you. So Jesus says, find her some food. She's really alive. Friends, how robust is your faith in the midst of circumstances that are terrible and terrifying? When distress and despair are are right there on your doorstep, Is your inclination towards terror or trust in Jesus? He says, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus is so much more than a teacher or even a healer, isn't he? He is the Savior, the one who calls people from death to life. And number four, we come to from isolation to community. Back to verse 43. What stops Jesus in his tracks? It's a woman in the crowd who has no business being there because she is socially and religiously unclean. She has lived under an exceedingly harsh master for a very long time. Constant bleeding, suffering, and sorrow. And the best efforts of humanity, they haven't helped a bit. Her last hope is to just get close enough to Jesus. To brush her outstretched fingers across the fibers of his clothing 
That's her plan. And that's what she does. She approaches Jesus, touches the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Get this. Contact with Jesus, it fixes in a microsecond what evil has been working on for 12 long years. Jesus realizes something has happened. Who touched me? He asks. Peter thinks it's a ridiculous thing to ask. It seems like everyone is touching Jesus. Though Jesus says again, no, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. What a fascinating comment, eh? Jesus is not a magician. Let's let's get that clear. Jesus is not a magician. In order for the woman to be healed, something must be transferred from Jesus. Her healing requires an expenditure, an exertion, a, a personal cost to Jesus. It's a cost he's willing to pay. His power overcomes her impurity completely. The woman owns up. She has nowhere to go except the feet of Jesus. She falls before him, and her whole story, a desperate, awkward tale of bleeding and frustration and isolation, just comes tumbling out of her mouth as she sits there trembling. Perhaps she's thinking, If Jesus finds out who I am, if he finds out how unclean I am, he'll be repulsed. He'll take back what he's given. He probably won't want anything to do with me. And maybe some of us here have had similar suspicions about Jesus. Jesus listens, and then he delivers his final word on the matter. And Jesus wants there to be no doubt how he deals with unclean, shame-filled, messed-up, less-than-put-together outcasts who humbly come to him. Notice how tenderly Jesus speaks to the woman in verse 48. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. She came in chaos. She goes in peace. Jesus commits this woman back to society. He commends her faith and he confirms that what she felt in her body was not just a feeling. No, that was the real deal. What this woman gets is is far more than simply a physical cure. She receives relational and spiritual wholeness. Through Jesus, she moves from isolation to community. And that brings us then to our final point. From the penalty of sin... To the peace of salvation. Chaos, destruction, death, isolation, they are less the exception and more the rule in our broken world, aren't they? 
even in Perth, 2023. They are the effects of sin, products of humanity rejecting the kingdom of God in favor of the kingdom of self, like the people of the Gerasenes at one point or another, We've all acted like we're better off without Jesus. But all that's gotten us is fractured lives and a shattered relationship with God. And there's only one way for our lives and for that relationship to be healed. It's if Jesus ultimately takes the penalty of sin. If he takes that destruction, that chaos, that isolation, that Death onto himself at the cross. And that's what he does. And we benefit. From chaos to calm. From destruction to restoration. From death to life. From isolation to community. This is a comprehensive four-dimensional picture of what Jesus offers what he holds out to each one of us. In essence, Jesus is able to take us from the penalty of sin and to the peace of salvation. So what does that mean then? What does that mean for us tonight? We're going to answer that through quickly recapping those four episodes we've just gone through. So stay with me here. Here we go. In our first episode, Jesus' interrogation of his disciples consists of one question, but it's a doozy. Where is your faith, he asks. And his disciples, remember, they're fearful. Next, we saw an illustration in two parts. Fear prevailed in that crowd of the Gerasenes, though the man who Jesus cured, he exhibited faith, didn't he? Then Jesus' exhortation to Jairus is this, Don't be afraid, just believe. Forsake your fear for faith. And though afraid, the woman does just that in our final episode. And Jesus' declaration to her, it it must have been the sweetest words she'd ever heard. eh? Your faith has healed you. And so that summary, then, it informs the application for us. When it comes to Jesus, friends, will you allow yourself to be seized by fear? Afraid, apathetic, even antagonistic towards Jesus? Or will you place your faith in the one who seizes you by the hand to pull you out of the jaws of sin And into the joy of salvation. Will you make the move from fear to faith? What's holding you back? And think back then too to to the story of the bleeding woman. Did you find it curious how Luke includes that story right in the middle of the story about Jairus' daughter? In verse 42, Jairus' daughter, she's dying... By verse 49, she's dead. And between those verses, Luke pivots to record Jesus' interaction with that woman. Why the narrative inception? Why the story within 
the story. Here's the logic, I think. It shows us the right response to Jesus. It highlights how to live between dying and death. Between dying and death. That is a space we all occupy. Some of us here sense that more keenly than others. But regardless of how you feel, each one of us is 20, 25 minutes closer to their death than when I started this sermon. How should we live between dying and death? The woman shows us. So take this in. Here it is. The only sane way. The only reasonable way to occupy that space between dying and death is to trust Jesus. Faith in Jesus Christ, that is how we inhabit the present That is how we take our next breath in the space between dying and death. And we've seen, we've seen four divine demonstrations that Jesus is supremely worthy of our faith. Chaos to calm, destruction to restoration, death to life. Isolation to community. Here's the last thing I'd love to point out. Did you pick up what the demon-possessed man, what Jairus, and what the woman all do when they meet Jesus? Did you see this? Each one of them falls at his feet. Their lives are a mess. Their world is breaking. Insanity is at level 10 Everything is chaos, crazy. But here's what they discover. That they're low, fallen at Jesus' feet. That is the perfect place to find sanity. You may feel this world is insane. And that's true, it sure is. But it's nothing new. Where do you find sanity? At the feet of Jesus. Where do you find calm amidst the chaos, wholeness, and wellness? It's at the feet of Jesus. He is the one who fundamentally shifts our reality from the penalty of sin to the peace of salvation. Where do you go? To find someone worth putting your faith in, you go to the feet of Jesus. Where do you go when your faith feels shaky, when it's feeble? You go to the feet of Jesus. Friends, here's what I want to leave you with this evening. One sentence I'd love you to walk away with. The home of sanity. The home of saving faith is at the feet of Jesus Christ. Amen.